Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Three more unders. I mean, really, at this point, it's it's pretty silly. I know that we hesitated a bit on, I thought, Minnesota-Memphis. I, I actually thought that number was pretty close. And then Phoenix-New Orleans, I actually thought that number was relatively close, too. So those weren't ones that we dove into. But remember, I did say I thought Miami-Atlanta, that pace was like 204, 206, something like that. The thing that surprised me was that that was a closeout game. And... Uh, we didn't need a ton of fouls at the end. Now, obviously, Jimmy Butler was out. I know I'm diving right into it, but whatever. That's what we're doing today. So get used to it. We're doing the dive in today. My voice is tired. Done a lot of podcasts, done a lot of baseball broadcasts. We'll get through it. Anyway, the Atlanta Hawks are out. And as we continue to point out, if you look at the pace of these games and you adjust for the sort of continuing adjustments of a series and how they they get tougher as it goes everything is right on pace every time one of these games hits an over i'm happy because i know the next game is probably going under it just rarely with with the possible exception of nuggets warriors because to this point nobody's really played any defense in that one but let's look at the games coming up tonight these are these are interesting ones only two net celtics obviously that series is over that game would have been tonight but doesn't need to be. They're E tomorrow. And we'll get into those on tomorrow's podcast. Of course, Friday, we'll kind of do a reboot where everybody's sitting, playoffs, all that kind of stuff. But uh, we're not there yet. We're It's Wednesday. It's Wednesday. Hi, by the way. Welcome to Fantasy NBA Today. This is a sports ethos presentation. I'm your host, Dan Bespris. We're going to do the same thing as usual today. We'll talk some NBA playoffs, see if we can't find another couple of uh, pace-related angles to exploit. And then we're going to do another team today. I enjoyed that yesterday. I like talking about the Knicks. Even if they're the Knicks, I like talking about it. We'll talk about another team today from the Atlantic Division. We'll work our way across the U.S. sweeping around. There's no perfectly linear way to cover the U.S. given where the teams are located. But uh, we'll work our way through. Bulls-Bucks. Let's start there. Bucks are favored by 12.5 at home. That line opened at 10.5 and, and it just keeps going up. One of the big reasons why, of course, is that Zach Levine is in COVID protocols for the third time in just over a calendar year. You guys might remember, and I'll never forget it, I got I got a one-star review on the podcast last year at about this time when Zach Levine went into protocols, and I asked, do you think his teammates are upset? Do you think his teammates are upset? We didn't know whether or not he was vaccinated at that point. I don't believe he was. And I said, do you think his teams are upset that their key guy went down for two and a half weeks right as they're trying to make their playoff push? Remember, the season ended in May last year. And someone called me the vaccine police, which is just like, if you're going to listen to the podcast, listen to the freaking words I'm saying. God, that review made me angry because clearly someone wasn't actually listening to the words I was saying. I don't know if that dude's listening again, but if you are, you can go back. I think the show's still there. I said, do you think his teammates are upset that he got put in protocols? I didn't say what he should or shouldn't do. You guys know what I believe on that front anyway. Please don't die from this. It's pretty simple. Uh, but do you think that it caused any kind of locker room rift? I was wondering that aloud. Anyway, Bulls went on to bring in DeMar DeRozan 
and bring in Lonzo Ball, and they sort of bulked things up. And so I think Zach Levine is probably pretty pleased. And then the main guys around him are largely different now than they were a year ago. So it didn't end up really mattering. I just thought, look, if this is a team that has Levine as their main dude a year ago, and the main dude went out for three weeks, presumably because he hadn't been vaccinated yet. We don't know. Do you think anybody was upset? That's all I asked. Anyway, he's back in COVID protocols now because Omicron gets all gets us all. Uh, and the Bulls were already in trouble. Down three games to one. Bucks woke up. Sometimes a team just needs to lose one. Kind of feel it. Okay, okay. Now we got to get ourselves locked in. This is really, this is a key moment for Milwaukee because they need, they need time. They need to get Chris Middleton back. I mean, that's a big deal here. And he's still, I would think, a week and a half away, probably at the soonest. But in any event, they're going to be focused on this one ball game for now. And then everything else will, we'll see, kind of fall into place after that. Last ball game, Milwaukee scored 119. Chicago scored just 95. But how we got there is more important. Because the game was actually played at a decent clip. Milwaukee had about 109 possessions. And Chicago had also around 109 possessions. So this was one that very easily could have gotten to that number from the last ballgame. Last one uh, total was 219.5. And pace-wise, it was right on the money. The only reason it didn't get there is because Chicago shot 39% from the field, and neither team got to the free throw line all that often. I don't know what this game's going to look like without Zach Levine. That is, of course, uh, an extenuating factor. Um... And money's coming in on the under, probably because there's no Zach Levine. But in a very weird twist, the total of 217.5 is right on the money. Right on the money. It could go under because maybe the Bulls do struggle to score mightily in that ballgame. You know, that's the type of stuff you can't always account for. And they only scored 81 in their last ballgame. But if you think Chicago has any kind of offensive showing in this ballgame. This is one of those weird ones where the line is actually depressed, probably a little bit too far, because of how bad the Bulls have been on offense. Chicago's not getting to the free throw line, almost at all. Bucks did a couple games back. Remember, they lost that one. That was game two in Milwaukee. Chicago beat them 114-110. Got a massive game from DeMar DeRozan, and that was enough to kind of lift them up and over the hump. Bucks have figured out how to score now. They're getting their 110 to 115 points a game. They've, they've solved that part of the problem. Can they lock Chicago down to 95, anywhere between 80 and 95 again? It's hard to say. I, I feel like the Bulls are kind of, and it's a weird assessment to make, but it does feel like they're a little bit due to have a slightly better offensive game. And that means they might lose, you know, 116 to 105 but that still puts this game over. So in a very weird twist, I actually think this is one that could eke up and over the total because I think we might have the same pace as the last ball game, which is around 217, 218, 219. Milwaukee has been overachieving, which we again saw their last ball game was way back on Sunday. Milwaukee put up 119 by themselves. They could go... You know, they were expected to get 109 on possessions. I think they do better than one point per possession. So get them to 115, 116. And then Chicago really just has to hit 100, which I think they probably do in this one. And you probably, I mean, if they're down like nine points 
with 40 seconds to go, you probably do see some of that closeout fouling stuff as well. I want to try to extend it, maybe hit a couple of threes. Who knows? You tack on those extra five or six points at the very end of the ballgame, and it gets there. Last ballgame would have gotten there with five or six more points. It's pretty rare for Dan, me, I, to kind of like an over. I don't know that I would bet it, because you know me. I'm pretty much under or bust on this stuff. But I actually think the value on this game is on the over, believe it or not. What does that mean? It means I just sort of wouldn't bet the under. Nuggets-Warriors is an interesting one. It sounds like Steph Curry may may be back in the starting lineup for this one tonight. Warriors favored by 8.5, total 226. It's pretty much still there. And, you know, there isn't a reason to think that the Warriors are going to stop scoring. They put up 121 in the last ball game. The only difference in that game was that Nikola Jokic went completely bananas, and he scored 150 by himself. No, he scored 37 by himself on 21 shots, made all of his free throws. Aaron Gordon and Monte Morris each actually ended up with decent ball games as well, so he got a little bit of help, and Denver scored a buck 26. But, you know, for the, on the Warriors' side, this series, man, they're getting a lot of days off between games. Warriors scored 118 in the previous one. That ball game went over the total. Uh, when the hell did the Warriors have their previous game? They scored a buck 26 in the game before that. Also went over the total. And the first game was way back that first Saturday, I think. Warriors scored 123. That one also went over the total. So when you're looking back, and at some point, we're going to look back at the first round and say, oh, here's how many games went over and how many went under. The Pretty much the games that went over was this series. Warriors Nuggets have gone over in all four games so far. First one, they scored 230. That went over 223 by 7. Second game was the Monday, the 18th. Teams combined for 232. That also went over 222 and a half. 231, they scored in the next game. Went over 222 and a half. They're sticking with basically the same number. Last one was up a point, 223.5. That went over as well, 247. At some point, it'll swing back the other way. Line finally all the way up to 225.5 right now. I said 226. It's pretty much near there. So they're finally making the adjustment to where, not that the games have been that fast necessarily. I mean, that last ball game had was a little bit quicker, I suppose. Warriors had 116, 117 possessions. Nuggets were around 111 possessions. So you're still talking about a combined pace that, that got in between 225 and 230. Uh, but both teams have just continued to overachieve, particularly the Warriors, on the offensive side. I haven't seen anything to make me think that suddenly we're going to get a defensive-minded game. But I also now, with the them finally adjusting the total up by four or five points, you're finally looking at a number that's much closer to where it should be. I think there was an expectation that the teams might make some sort of adjustment on the defensive side. Warriors have been good enough on the defensive side, and Denver just doesn't have the horses for it. They're just not a good defensive team, missing key players, and so on and so forth. Do I think it goes over again? I don't know. I think this one probably ends near 226 to 228. But again, we're talking closeout stuff. Do we know if Nuggets are going to do a bunch of fouling at the end? What if the Warriors are running away with it? If it's really close late, then you're going to get a lot of tired shots at the end of the ballgame. And I think this one's just a pretty good number. I I don't want to go back to the well and say five straight overs in a series. That's pretty unusual in the playoffs. 
but I've seen nothing to make me think it's going the other way. So slightly to the over in the first ball game, really no leans on, on game number two tonight. And now we segue into our team du jour. The Boston Celtics, who actually were a delight from a fantasy standpoint this year. A freaking delight. I got to make sure I'm not including any playoff games in uh, my assessment of the Celtics, but this was a team that had fantasy value beyond our wildest dreams. They ended up, and we can't really say Derek White was part of it because he did most of his damage in San Antonio. He was much worse with Boston towards the end of the year in a reserve role, but the Celtics entire starting lineup was top 80 or better. That's pretty awesome. Nine cat per game basis, top 80 or better. Marcus Smart was 79, sort of did it despite not being able to hit many shots. Jalen Brown was 63, generally overdrafted because he scores a bunch. Al Horford, Big Al, was 47 on the year. We had a lot of drop questions when he went through about a five-week slump in the middle of the year. Yeah, you held on, didn't you? Time Lord and Jason Tatum were 13 and 14 per game. And then the real beauty here is that Tatum, who we talked about a lot preseason as a guy that I thought was going to be underdrafted because the Celtics underachieved last season, was super hyper durable. You pull out all the COVID crap and suddenly he's back to being a young guy who can play through stuff. 76 out of 82 ball games, which vaulted him on a totals basis up to... Drum roll, drum roll, number five. Number five. Marcus Smart was actually more durable than usual. He played 71 games, usually sort of Pat Beverly's himself, but he was decent enough. Missing only 11 games this year was actually a win, believe it or not. For the top 150 fantasy players, average games missed was closer to 13 this season. Good grief. You can't expect anyone to get close to 82 anymore. And for a guy like Tatum, I mean, if you only miss six games and the average player is missing 13, that's a monster advantage. Time Lord. Missed 21 games. Still, end of the second round by totals this year. Al Horford only missed 13 games. Right on the money. He was actually number 36. Actually, the number of missed games might have been more like 14 this year. I'm not going to talk about Derek White. Jalen Brown missed... 16 games, which tends to happen with him. So he was down at number 67 by total, so just a little bit behind where he was by on averages. And the beauty part, the, the, the true beauty of all of this is that all of those guys are signed next year. The Boston Celtics is one of my favorite off-season teams to break down because not only did they have amazing fantasy value, but most likely, there's not going to be a great deal of turnover. They got a big-ass payroll, don't they? They sure do. Tatum, signed for eternity. Marcus Smart, signed for eternity. Time Lord, signed through eternity. Four-year extension he got. All those guys are signed basically through the end of 2026. The only one who's close is Horford, who has a $26 million salary next season. It's not an option, though. He's locked in. And it's the only thing you could see maybe do the Celtics move some pieces around, uh, make sure that they say, look, Time Lord, you're our guy. Robert Williams, you're our man in the middle. Do we want to space things out as Horford gets a little bit older? 
You know, does a guy like Grant Williams start to pull some of Horford's minutes away? But at the same time, Big Al was brilliant for Boston this year. He did all of the things they needed. Ball movement on offense. Spacing on offense. He had a three and a half this year. He almost hit more three-pointers than Marcus Smart. He rebounded more than usual. Field goal percent was back near 47 after some down ticks. Free throw at 84. Barely any turnovers. And defensively, Horford is the king of being in the right place at the right time. And that translated to two defensive stats per game this year. There's very little reason to believe that the Celtics are going to do something drastic. They are very good defensively. And I don't like they're they're a legit championship contender right now. With the Bucks at full strength, I probably give them the edge. No Chris Middleton right now, so who knows what's Boston going to try to do with Giannis? Look, if there's a team out there, and I would say there are two. If there are two teams out there that have a chance to slow down Giannis, no one's going to stop him. It's Boston and Miami. And if you're Milwaukee, you know that's what's still hanging around for you in the playoffs. Bucks will have the Celtics in the next round if they finish off the Bulls. Those two teams finish with the exact same record, by the way. I don't know that Boston has the exact right pieces to deal with Giannis. I think Miami probably has better bodies for it. Like a healthy P.J. Tucker would be an annoyance for him. Bam Adebayo would be a bit of an annoyance for him. I, you know, I don't know that... You know, the funny thing is that Al Horford, three years ago, was probably the best option to defend Giannis. Because he's just so smart with his feet and doesn't foul. Now I don't know that he has quite the quickness to stay anywhere near him. It's, it's you know, you're on the second half of, of Big Al's career. Uh, we know Bam is probably that guy right now. I think the Bucks are going to miss Middleton in series against teams like Boston and like Miami in a way that they're not really missing him against Chicago because the Bulls just don't, they're not going to be able to defend that way. I'm looking back at how the teams fared this year. Um, Bucks lost to Miami in their first meeting. That was right at the front end of the season. Beat them and then lost to them in early January or literally December and then beat them by a nose back at the beginning of March. And then Boston is also kind of an interesting story because the Celtics weren't very good at the beginning of the year. Uh, but Milwaukee lost to Boston in November, lost to Boston in December, and then beat them on Christmas Day and beat them with a couple days to go in the regular season, although I don't know exactly how much the two teams were really keyed in on that one. I mean, it was a pretty good ball game. But they were all tight. That's the thing. These are going to be good ball games, and the only one that wasn't was a Boston win by 14 points early December. I mean, these are, and I don't know what's going to happen with Miami. Obviously, they're not, they're going to, they've got a different team on deck. They can't all, these teams can't all play each other at the exact same time. Uh, Miami's going to have Sixers, Raptors, whoever wins that series. But Bucks, Bucks have their hands full. I still think they're the team to beat, even as the three seed. But getting back to the Boston discussion, I don't want to get too far off, off topic here. The reason I brought up all that stuff about, you know, who they have to go through and what do the Bucks look like is that, if you're Boston, 
you're looking at the rest of the NBA and you're saying, what would we need to do to consider ourselves favorites over those teams? Because right now they can look at themselves and say, we can compete with any of these teams and we can beat any of these teams in a seven-game series. You know, Boston to me seems like a team that just gets better as a series goes on. As they start to see all the stuff you can run, they'll make their defensive adjustments. The teams that'll give the Celtics fits would be a guy like Giannis, because they're going to have to game plan around him, because there's no one player in the NBA that can deal with him, and the closest thing is probably out of bio. Uh, Celtics don't have that guy, so they're going to use a number of bodies. They'll do a lot of lane jamming, the way Phoenix did in the playoffs last year. Well, pretty much everybody did. But then Giannis made an adjustment. Remember, in the in the finals last season, he stopped trying to get all the way to the rim, and he just started hitting six, seven-foot hook shots. He was unstoppable anywhere near the key inside of it, and they just, you know, he had to get that close. I don't know what Boston could do to keep him from getting all the way to that spot, but I'm sure that's going to be something they're working on already. You can bet. But then what about looking at teams out west? Like, I know Boston... As Boston looks at every other team in the Eastern Conference, they look at a guy like Joel Embiid and think, all right, what do we do here? Because I mean, Philly is actually a bit of a problem for the Celtics because of Embiid. And could he get Time Lord into foul trouble? Could he get Horford into foul trouble? That That's a big-time disruptor to Boston's defense. What can they do about that? Not a whole lot. And I don't think they're going to make a big change in the front court just for Joel Embiid. And frankly, I'm sure Al Horford would love to try to deal with him after kind of an ugly stint in Philadelphia. And then out west, Phoenix, Golden State are the two teams Boston would look at and say, okay, do we have what it takes to beat those teams? Phoenix, I'd say, yeah. I mean, you know, you just you deal with what the Suns run, which is a lot of good stuff. And then with Golden State, they're a unique team. I'm sure Boston would have some weird plans to try to take Steph Curry out of it. What do they do there? I, I look at the Celtics team, and I don't think that they... I don't think they see a big hole that they need to address. I'd say depth, but that's really more of a regular season issue. We want more depth to make sure that our stars don't get worn out because now they're in that upper echelon. Now they're in that elite group that says we don't really have much to prove in the regular season. So that's the only, truly, because this is one reason I love the Celtics fantasy-wise so much, the only small detractor on this team is if they go deep into the playoffs— they're going to be a little worn out. They're going to need some depth, and then you're going to see some ever-so-slight depressions, I would think, in how many minutes guys get. They're not going to want Tatum playing 36 minutes a game next year. They're not going to want Jalen Brown playing 34. They probably won't even want Time Lord playing 30. So maybe you peel two minutes off of all of their numbers, and that's an ever-so-slight downtick. But, I mean, for goodness sake, what do we care? There's just a ton of safe plays on this team. Robert Williams probably going in the second round next year, and he's a little banged up. I mean, I know he finished at number 25 by totals. He does get hurt. I don't know that I would go higher than end of second round because of the injury stuff, because we've kind of seen this is a best-case scenario. He's not doing more than that. Jason Tatum, I'm totally happy taking him mid-first round again. Horford... I, he probably goes later than he should. He probably gets drafted in the 60s or 70s and probably ever so slightly outperforms that. Jalen Brown will likely get maybe a, a tiny bit overdrafted because he scores. And then Marcus Smart will probably go in the 70s, 80s, 90s range again, just like last time. So this is a pretty damn safe 
fantasy team to look at for next year. It's cool that you can almost slot them into your board in late April, and you you barely have anything to worry about. By the way, I would not draft Derek White next year. I wouldn't draft anyone on the Celtics bench uh, unless you think Horford comes off the bench and they and they move Grant Williams around, who, by the way, I wouldn't draft either, despite the fact that he was one of the most efficient shooters in the NBA. There's just not enough there for him. So Time Lord, I would guess maybe the tiniest bit overdrafted next year, but you guys know how much I love him, so I might make that reach. If I'm If I have an early pick... And so it loops back around to me at like, I don't know, 22, something like that. I might take him there. I'd probably take him there. I don't know if I'd go early second round, though. Even though that's where he was per game, and he probably could do it again, the injury stuff is a factor. He's, he hasn't made it through a full season yet, and you know, missed 21 games. That's a big deal. He crushed me. Uh, his injury at the end of this season, which was a slightly bigger one, knocked me from... Uh, having a chance to win a league down to tie for third, or set, tied between second and third. That cost me a bunch of money. I still love you, though, Time Lord. Still love your fantasy game more than anything. Tatum, he'll be accurately drafted. Horford will be a tiny bit underdrafted. Brown will be a little bit overdrafted, and Marcus Smart will be picked right on the money. Oh, I love an easy one. And not only do I love an easy one, but I love an easy one that's just filled with awesome fantasy stuff. Lakers fan over here talking about how much he loves the Boston Celtics fantasy-wise. Just, I mean, there's... We'll see. You know, anything's possible. Do they swing for the fences? Do they flame out hard in the next couple weeks and think, ah, we got to retool everything? I doubt it, though. Hey, drop a five-star review if you still haven't, by the way. I don't... I mean, it feels like you probably have. We're pretty deep into this thing, and I'm doubting there are many new listeners in the offseason, but you never know. And, of course, thank you to everybody that does continue to pay attention to the podcast in the offseason, even though, even though there isn't much going on from a fantasy perspective. But we got all these things to discuss. We got betting. We got teams. We got lessons learned. This, by the way, is offseason show number 13. See? Still on top of it. Just a matter of time, but I'll biff this soon. I am Dan Vespers for Fantasy NBA Today. Yeah, these shows are half an hour now. Get used to that, too. Have a fantastic Wednesday. Fantastic Wednesday. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow. Same format Thursday and then again Friday. We'll uh, peel back over to the, the playoff side. We'll talk more, you know, what basketball is actually happening right now. We got so much left to do to get ourselves ready for next year. It continues. So long, everybody. 